listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I need to know if you're ready to hear from God's Word today. I need to know if you're ready to receive from God's Word today. You really ready? Because I'm going to be pitching some fastballs here, and I need you to be able to catch them. And together, by God's grace, God will hit this thing out of the park, okay? Look with me at the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Today, we're going to look at how the right seat will help you stand. How the right seat will help you stand. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, where is this coming from? The throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death. It's important to understand that the ultimate final destination of all those who have not given their life to Christ is not reincarnation. It's not the grave. It's not a second chance. It's the second death. Now, I believe this because the Bible teaches it. I know that there are people out there today who don't believe in a literal hell, who don't believe in an eternal torment of separation from Almighty God, but the Bible teaches it, the Bible preaches it, and I know as well as you do, there are members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society out there, people who read the Bible as if it were lights off, sunglasses on, one eye closed, you know, people who read the Bible that way, you're going to miss huge portions of Scripture. And you're going to end up redefining Jesus on your own terms. You're going to end up with an unbiblical Jesus, and an unbiblical Jesus is a false Jesus, and you better run from anybody teaching and preaching that kind of a Jesus. So it's important for us to understand that the final destination of those who have not given their lives to Christ, and you might be one of them, and today's your opportunity to give your life to Christ. The final destination is a lake of fire, prepared originally for the devil and his angels, and that's where all people who in their life here on earth went through the first death, separation from God. And then finally, when they see the God that they've been denying and resisting their whole life, God gives them their request for all eternity. 
to spend forever and ever apart from him the way they had done that while they were on earth. So it's important to understand that the final destination of all those who have not given their life to Christ is a eternity, is an eternity apart from Christ in the lake of fire. It's also important to understand that the final destination for those who have given their lives to Christ is not heaven. It's a common misconception. People think that they're going to spend eternity in heaven, and that's not biblical. We saw it here. If you missed it, let's look at it again here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is a theocracy on earth where God is ruling and reigning. God is the king of kings on earth, and God's people, those who have accepted God in this current life, will be with God in that theocracy in the life to come with a new heaven and a new earth. It's there in the scriptures. Now, did you catch something very interesting here that if you don't look carefully at it, you could miss it? In verse 8, let's start with verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is not a sexist term, the sonship issue. This is the Lord speaking in the culture of the day. The idea of being a son was to have a position of favor, a position of honor, a position of relationship, all right? So don't get hung up on the son word. Be fixated and focused on the idea of being brought into a relationship with God that you otherwise would not have, okay? To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, it's interesting here. These are characteristic traits of those who have not given their lives to Christ. Anybody who has truly given their life to Christ will not be characterized, will not be characterized as a murderer. They will not be characterized as being faithless. They will not be characterized as being sexually immoral, somebody who continues to practice sexual immorality, somebody who continues to murder, somebody who continues to operate with faithlessness, somebody who continues to dabble in sorcery, somebody who continues to be idolatrous, somebody who continues to lie. Somebody who continues to lie is a liar. So anybody who's given their life to Christ cannot, will not be characterized as having these characteristics, all right? Important to understand. All believers at some time or another may engage in any one of those things. But if a person is a real believer, they will not characteristically continue in those things. We understand that? Have I lost anybody? But I might have lost you, and you might have overlooked this important word that characterizes the lives of an unbeliever. That's unsuspecting, and it's very telling for you and for me. In verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the cowardly. 
Did you know that there's a direct correlation between your faith and your courage? There is a direct correlation between your faith and your courage. Those who understand who Jesus is and understand who they are in Jesus will have courage as a direct byproduct. And that's why I want to talk about, in the remainder of our time, how the right seat, the right seat will help you stand. Understanding who Jesus Christ is, understanding who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ, or who you might not yet be if you're right now an unbeliever, understanding who you are in Christ will help you have courage while others are demonstrating cowardice. It's very important to understand that courage and faith are interwoven. They go together. If you are a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl of faith, you will have courage. Now, it's important for you to understand this. It's important for us to grasp this and really let this get down deep into who we are because there's coming a day where persecution is going to be more prominent in the United States of America. And I have been warning you, this is not a fear-mongering thing. This is a biblical reality. If you read Matthew 24, if you read the book of Revelation, where beheading has become the predominant means of assassinating God's saints, you understand that persecution will increase and grow and become more and more intense. So if you think that you're being persecuted, that I'm being persecuted, that the church is being persecuted now in the United States of America, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because biblically, persecution, severe persecution, will be the rule of the day. It will be the norm of the day prior to the return of Jesus Christ. And even a casual reading through the book of Revelation where beheading has become the predominant means of assassination for God's saints will help you understand that persecution will increase, not decrease. And if you are not courageous for Jesus Christ now, then how in the world will you be courageous for Jesus Christ when the real persecution starts? Amen. Courage and faith are interwoven. If you have a right understanding of Jesus and a right understanding of who you are and what you have in Jesus, you will be able to stand while others are cowering. Look with me at Luke chapter 22. This is Jesus as now he has given himself to the leaders of Israel. He's volunteered himself up. That's what it means to be a sacrifice. Jesus was not murdered. Very important to understand that. He willingly, voluntarily surrendered his life to the Father, not primarily to the Jewish leaders, not primarily to the Roman soldiers. Jesus surrendered his life to the Father so that he could Give the Father what he wanted and what he wants, which is relationship with you, relationship with me. Those of us who have given our lives to Christ have accepted him as our Savior and God. Now have a relationship with God the Father by faith in the identity of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus has volunteered himself, and now the trial is getting underway. 
In verse 63 of Luke 22, we read, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. This would have been a golden opportunity for Jesus to set the record straight if they were misunderstanding his claims about who he was. All the claims that he had been saying would have been a golden opportunity. He's being given this on a silver platter. They're lobbing a softball to him, giving him every opportunity, humanly speaking, to get out of this situation and to set the record straight. But instead, what we see Jesus doing is letting them give correct testimony about himself and Jesus actually, again, using that favorite title of his, Son of Man, that we find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the Son of Man. Look at it yourself when you have time. Daniel chapter 7, we see Jesus here once again using that favorite phrase, that favorite title, Son of Man, in reference to himself. For Jesus to do that, he would either be blaspheming if he had no right to do that, or he would be intentionally helping them as Jewish people who understood the significance, at least to a certain degree, of the Son of Man, Jesus was helping them connect the dots and understand that I am the one spoken of in Daniel's prophecy about the end times. So we see Jesus intentionally being an outstanding communicator, an excellent communicator, making sure that the people identify him as their savior, their God, their master, and their Lord, even though they're rejecting him because their hearts were hardened their eyes were blinded, and they were very effective legalists. And it's a reminder for us again that there is no comfort in simply memorizing the Bible if that's your end objective. Understanding and becoming familiar with the Bible can merely guarantee that you end up like one of these leaders who knew the Bible very well and yet did not know the Savior about whom the Bible was written when he was standing there right in front of them. And so the right response for a follower of Jesus Christ is tremendous humility, tremendous reverence for God to understand that the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to the feet of Jesus Christ. If your Bible study and your Bible memorization and your Bible meditation, you're listening while you're driving in your car or exercising or cooking or whatever the case might be, you're listening to the Bible, If all of that listening and all of that studying does not lead you to deeper and deeper repentance in Jesus, deeper and deeper intimacy with Jesus, deeper and deeper understanding of how you fall short and how Jesus fits the bill of perfection, 
If you're Bible study reading, if you're studying in the Bible and you're reading of other books about the Bible and you're listening to the Bible, does not lead you with greater and greater ease to forgive other people who have wronged you. Can it just get hot in here? If your study of the scriptures and your listening to the Bible does not lead you to have greater and greater courage to take a stand for Jesus Christ, then your reading of the Bible, your studying of the Bible, your listening to the Bible is misguided and misdirected. The purpose of all Bible study, all reading of the Bible, all reading about the Bible, all listening to the Bible is to build up your faith to create tremendous courage to stand for God in a day and an age where it's becoming increasingly difficult to stand for God without being criticized, without being condemned. To build your faith, lift your Bible. To build your faith, lift your Bible. Read the Bible in such a way, listen to the Bible in such a way that you actually apply it in your own life. That's what the Bible was given to us for, to help us understand. The Bible was given to us to help us not only understand about God, but to also be transformed by God as we study the Bible, as we read the Bible, so that we can cooperate with God, say yes to him before we even know what it is that he's asking of us. You ever thought about that, that the purpose of studying the Bible is to agree with God about what he already knows, to say yes to God before you even know what it is he's going to ask of you. There are things, there are big asks in your future, big asks in your future that you have no idea, you, you cannot comprehend what they are today. Today has enough worries of its own. But if you're building your faith by lifting the Bible and applying the Bible in your own life, when the day of testing comes, you will be able to have courage because your faith and your courage go hand in glove. There is difficulty coming in this nation. I'm trying to prepare you for it. That's not fear-mongering. That's faith-building. I want you to be prepared for what's coming down the road. And the best way for you to prepare for what's coming down the road is to day by day through a steady diet of God's word and the application of God's word, putting the word of God into practice in your own life. If you're not doing that now, you're not going to do it when it gets really difficult. Or you might have to have a major adjustment in your life in order to begin doing what every follower of Jesus Christ should be doing here and now. To build your faith, lift your Bible. Don't just memorize it, don't just become familiar with it. Understand that the purpose of all Bible study, all Bible reading, listening to the Bible, the purpose of all of it is to lead you to the point of understanding more about Jesus, understanding who you are in relationship to him, and living the kind of life that you otherwise would not live. Courage and faith go hand in glove. Now look more closely with me at verse 67 here in Luke's gospel. If you are the Christ or the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's Incredibly important to understand the significance of what just rolled off of Jesus' lips. From now on, 
the Son of Man, referencing himself, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is a significant position that Jesus is ascribing to himself, the audacity of Jesus to put himself in a position of honor and victory and privilege and closeness with God the Father, he's using terminology that the Jews would have understood very clearly in a reverential way. Jesus is indeed in Jewish thinking, in Jewish language. He's putting himself on equal footing with God. He's either being audacious or he is being deliberate and intentional. You know where I come down on that issue? He's being intentional. And only Jesus could say that about himself. This position of being at the right hand of God is a position of favor and honor. And it gets worked out in the rest of the New Testament. The lines are connected and we begin to understand the theology behind Jesus' statement here. From now on, you will see me. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand, the right hand of the Most High, the right hand of Yahweh, Israel's God, your God and my God if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. What is the significance of that? See, the right seat, the right seat will help you understand the right understanding of the right seat, what Jesus means here by being seated at the right hand of God will help you stand. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verses 32 and 33. This is Peter giving his famous message on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 were added to the faith that particular day. And he says toward the end here, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter is affirming what Jesus was talking about would happen in the future. Peter is saying that this has now been accomplished that Jesus is now in that position of approval, he's in that position of completion, that he is now seated at the right hand of Almighty God. And the people are convinced, they're cut to the heart. 3,000 of them accept that Jesus as their Savior and their God. It's huge, it's a significant thing. And then when we look at the book of Romans, look with me at the book of Romans in verse 31. Beginning in verse 31, going through verse 39. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The idea is that there is a legal theological pronunciation of God making it so that it's just as if you had never sinned. That's what the word justified means. That when you give your life to Christ, no matter what's in your past, no matter what's in your present that you are about to repent of, 
God makes it so that it's just as if you have never sinned. It is a legal pronunciation as from a judge saying you're pardoned. That's what it means to be justified. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is no. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Remember Revelation 21, to him who conquers. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. You get the impression that Paul is losing his vocabulary here. He's losing the ability with mere words to convey what God has done for the believer in Jesus Christ. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reason why Paul is able to be so convincing about this, and we have just begun to look at some of the scriptures that we're going to look at together, and that you're going to then look at further beyond our time together, that have to deal with the ramifications of Jesus being seated at the right hand of his Father, and you as a believer being seated with him right there. It's huge. It's massive. Understanding the right seat will help you Stand strong. Verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? This is a position of influence, a position of intercession. And what is conveyed here is the power and the authority of Jesus. How can Jesus intercede effectively unless he has a position of closeness with God the Father? How can Jesus do this with great success, unwavering success, unless Jesus had and has the power and the authority, so much so that God the Father would listen to him? It's huge. This is a position of finality, of closure, of intercession. It helps us understand that Jesus is pulling for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is pulling for you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is pulling for you, that your eyes are to be opened, that your heart would be softened, that you would come to accept him as your Savior, your God, your Master and Lord, and then he too will intercede for you as well. He will intercede for you as well. And he'll do something absolutely mind-blowing and amazing as we begin to look at now Ephesians chapter 1. And the significance of this right seat, being seated at the right hand of God, and how that results in tremendous courage, tremendous building up of your faith. When we understand the truth about Jesus Christ and what we have in Jesus, it cannot help 
but overflow into great courage in your life. And how many of you understand that one of the greatest needs we have in the body of Christ today is for courage? Who cares what mere mortals think? The only thing that you should care about, the only thing that I should care about is what we know about Jesus Christ and what we know about what we have in Jesus Christ. When you know who Jesus is and you know what you have in relationship to Jesus, you too will be able to stand with tremendous courage. Ephesians chapter one, verse 16. This is in the middle of Paul's lengthy prayer that the Ephesians would understand what they have in Christ. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might." that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. There it is again, the right hand. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, the phrases, the words that Paul uses elsewhere and here that seem to indicate his reference to evil spirits and angelic beings. Jesus is above all of them far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's look again at verse 20. The things that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a position of power and authority and favor and approval. Listen, God's not going to put anybody close to him. The Father's not going to let anybody sit close to him unless the Father wants that person to sit close to him. The fact that it was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead and then welcomed him to sit at his right hand is a definitive statement by God the Father that you need to take to heart, that I need to take to heart, every believer needs to take to heart. It helps us understand the identity of Jesus Christ as having power and authority unlike any other, but it doesn't stop there. Let's continue in Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one. This is your position and mine, and it might even be your position right now if you have not yet accepted Christ and you're about to do that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Again, don't get caught up on the word sons. Get caught up on the idea of there are two types of people in the world, people who are disobedient to God, characteristically, and people who are obedient to God. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your life should be characterized by obedience to God. And if it's not, something's out of whack. Something's out of whack. You're not living in light of your new identity. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, by undeserved favor, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're waiting to get your life together before you give your life to Christ, you don't understand what I just read. You will never be able to get your life together to the degree to which it must be in order to be forgiven of all your sins because God's standard is perfection. And if you've committed one sin, you're not perfect. And now you understand your need for Jesus Christ and faith in the flawless, sinless life of Jesus Christ and who he is for the forgiveness of your sins. Wonderful, you're almost there. But did you notice what Paul says here? In verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you understand Jesus and who he is and his position of authority and power and favor and intimacy with God the Father, and you understand now as we just read in Ephesians, that God has seated you, seated me, seated every single believer with Jesus, you begin to understand that God Almighty, it's a miracle of miracles, it's a very humbling thing, has given you as a believer authority, authority over every principality and power, every evil spirit, every circumstance. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing, because you're right there with him at the right hand of God. That's a position that's undeserved, undeserved favor, undeserved honor, undeserved authority. Now, we're just beginning here. Look with me now at the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, and you have, we just read that from Ephesians, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see again, the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. You have died. In fact, it's probably good for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and God to say that together. I have died. Let's all say that together on the count of three. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, let's say that together. I have died. One, two, three. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See what God is sharing with you, sharing with me. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, 
passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices." and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. How is your mind renewed? How is your life transformed by the renewing of your mind? Remember, to build your faith, lift your Bible. And what Paul is talking about here in Colossians is that the believer, the one who's been regenerated, the one who's been saved, now has a new calling and a new capacity. Since you have the best seat in the house, which is with Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, live like it. Live in a way that reflects that position of honor and authority and power. Sin is spiritual amnesia. Sin is what we do when we forget who we are in Christ, when we forget who Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And if Jesus is seated with his Father at the right hand, and if you're seated with Jesus, sin is absolutely absurd, isn't it? But if you understand the right seat of God, you will be able to stand with courage where you would otherwise be cowering. Look with me at the book of Hebrews, chapter one, beginning in verse one. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory, of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is a position of finality and closure. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down as if it was all done. And guess what? It is all done. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, there was nothing else that needed to be accomplished for the forgiveness of your sins, for the purification, the removal of all of your sins. And by the way, you are seated with Jesus right there next to his Abba Daddy. You're seated right there next to Jesus in that position of authority that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve, but God Almighty gave it to you. It's done. It's once and done. Look with me now at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, we're going to look at three more verses from Hebrews. Great book in the Bible. They're all great, but a great book in the Bible to understand the finished work of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Remember when we were reading in Revelation 21, the throne? The point we are saying in this is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not Man, this is Jesus being in the highest possible place of ministry. 
There is no one above Jesus. Everybody is below Jesus. Jesus is called the high priest for you and for me. Again, we see the role of Jesus here as being an intercessor, one who is a mediator, a go-between. You needed and you need somebody to go between you. I need somebody to go between me and our heavenly Father, God the Father. And that person is found in the Son, Jesus. All right? Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, the time when Jesus will return. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 33, this is what this is referencing, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done. It's one and done. This is an understanding of the position of finality and closure of Jesus Christ being seated at the right hand of his Father. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The light at the end of the tunnel is not a train. The light at the end of the tunnel is Jesus. There is no place for nihilism or feudalism or fatalism in the Bible. There is no room for that in your faith or in mine or in the biblical faith. We are all, as followers of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us called to a higher standard of living, a newer standard of living, where we are, each of us, running toward Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the finish line, and at that finish line is Jesus seated at the right hand of Almighty God with a seat ready just for you. This helps us understand that this is a position of victory. You're running a race, and at the end of that race is the victor, Jesus Christ himself. He is awaiting you to finish the race. When this mortal life is over and your race is over, and you've completed what you've done for God, what God has called you to do, the idea is that you and I would live such a life that it's worthy of the calling and the position and the authority and the power of Jesus Christ because eventually when this life is over and eventually all of us are going to experience that, you will take your place, humbling as it is, with Jesus at the right hand of Almighty God. That is a position of victory as well as a position of authority. Now look with me at the book of Revelation. 
In Revelation chapter 3, verses 19, 20, 21, and 22, we read these words. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God wants to share the riches of Christ with you and with me. God has invited you and has already made up his mind to give you that position of honor and authority and right relationship, that position of intimacy with Almighty God for nothing other than being rightly related to him because you accepted his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, right living should happen as a byproduct. We live rightly for Jesus because we are rightly related to the Father. Now, an amazing thing to look at here is the book of Acts. Look with me at the book of Acts as we finalize our time together. A man named Stephen who wound up being the first martyr in the church was confronted by the leaders of the Jewish people and given an opportunity to give testimony. And look at what he does. In Acts chapter 6, verse 15, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so Stephen is given the opportunity to say something, to speak up on his own behalf, and he takes that opportunity with tremendous courage. Imagine that to give a short history of redemption. When he could have become a coward and backed off and been faithless, instead he rises up, the Spirit of God rises up within Stephen, and instead of shrinking back, he stands up and he gives a short history of redemption with tremendous courage. And guess what? That's what you will do too when the day of testing comes. If you understand who Jesus is and you understand who you are in Jesus, when the day of testing comes, you will not see it merely as a day of testing, merely as a day of persecution. You will see it as a day of opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ. A right understanding of the right seat will lead you to have tremendous courage just like Stephen. Acts chapter 7 Verse 54, now when they heard these things, the testimony that Stephen had given, the brief history of redemption, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing now. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. Here we see Stephen 
seeing Jesus who was seated at the right hand of his father now standing ready to receive him, you better believe that God has that same perspective, that same attitude, that same longing hunger for intimacy and closeness with you. Every believer who stands strong in Jesus has a warm reception from Jesus himself awaiting them. When you have an understanding, a right understanding of the right seat, it'll help you stand where others would be cowering. There is a direct correlation between your faith in Jesus Christ, understanding who Jesus Christ is, and your ability to stand firmly in Jesus. There's a direct correlation between your understanding of what you have as a believer in Jesus Christ and your ability to stand strong in him with courage while others are cowards. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.